Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Well, happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. Thankful for you. And I'm thankful I get to be with my dad and my father-in-law and my grandfather today on Father's Day. And so especially thankful for that. Uh, But we are thankful for all the dads. We have a gift for you on your way out the door this morning. I would ask if you would stand with me in honor of reading God's word. We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning. Just to kind of give you a heads up, it's a pretty long passage, so you may want to uh, pace yourself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, They saw Jesus walking on the sea, and he was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples But his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly, I tell you. You are not looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God? They asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven And gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, 
that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. The sword of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, when we think about Father's Day, uh, one of the things that we think about is power. Often uh, fathers enjoy power tools as gifts. Uh, Some dads in the room may enjoy cars and kind of the power of an engine or boats or any number of things. Uh, There's something about that uh, that is is an enjoyment of things that have power uh, at some level. Uh, On the other side of the equation, we know that fathers have incredible power over their families. Year after year, studies consistently show uh, the power of a father in different ways over children and their health in all different aspects. And we know when it comes to uh, spirituality, when it comes to faith, many people's view of God is very tied to their experience with their own father. And so a father has a powerful role and has a significant amount of power over their family. Uh, We see God described as a heavenly father. And yet what we're going to see is that God's power is a unique power, that the power that, that God has and the power that he calls us to pursue and to seek after uh, is a power that's different than simply the world's view of power. And we've seen this unfolding as there have been a group of, of Jewish people who have gathered around Jesus and have eaten bread and fish that he multiplied to feed a group of 5,000 men and and then their families beyond that. And once they saw that power displayed in that miracle, they wanted to make him king. And that was very much a view of worldly power. We talked about the fact that uh, that group of 5,000 was the number for a military uh, rank. And so they wanted to gather their forces together, make Jesus king, and go into Jerusalem and experience this political power that Jesus could provide for them. And yet we find that Jesus is not seeking after that power, that he is not pursuing a worldly kingdom Uh, that the way that he sees and utilizes power is very different from that. And so we're going to continue to see this focus on power uh, in our passage this morning. And the first thing that we're going to see is the power to give deliverance, the power to give deliverance. Now, we find the disciples are on the sea. They're on the Sea of Galilee and they are in a storm. And we know from history that both in Hebrew scriptures as well as other ancient literature, the sea was a place that was identified with death. It was a place of chaos. It was a place of disorder. It was a place that easily could lead to death. I experienced this in my own life. Uh, My grandparents were here in the first service. But my summer after my fifth grade year, my grandparents took me on a trip from Kansas City, Missouri up to Alaska. And we had a camper and we spent the summer driving around. And one place we stopped was the Golcana River. And we were salmon fishing 
But my grandfather took me, and it was one of his friends who we met up there on a raft. And we went out on this river. And when we set out, it was beautiful. But as the day went on, it got cloudier, and then it started getting windier, and then it started raining, and it ultimately downpoured in this huge storm uh, lightning and everything else came about. And so my grandmother had been waiting there for us the time that she thought we would be back. And she started asking people who would come up out of the water, hey, have you seen two men and uh, a little boy in a raft? And as hours passed by, she finally was saying, have you seen two dead men and a little boy in a raft? Uh, it was terrifying as we were in this storm completely exposed, you know, just being taken by this river in all different ways and freezing cold. And, and maybe you've been in an in experience like that where you've been out in the water in a boat in, in a storm, maybe in the dark, in a place that's chaotic. It's, it's very, uh, scary. It's, it's something that, that exposes the lack of your abilities and, and the, the inability really to provide your own safety. Well, that's where the disciples are. They're in a storm. They're in the dark. They're rowing this boat. We read that they'd rowed about three or four miles and We know that that's about halfway across the Sea of Galilee. And the other gospel accounts of this story tell us that it's been about 10 hours or more. And so if you do the math, three to four miles in about 10 hours is not good time, right? They're not moving quickly. And this is not going well for them. And so there is a very much a sense of their inability to both rescue themselves from the storm as well as their inability uh, to row themselves to the other side. And yet in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the fear that certainly would have gripped them, there is something that causes even greater fear. And that is the appearance of a man or the other gospels, they consider it might be a ghost walking on the water. They see Jesus walking on the sea. Now, this event, as I mentioned last week, would have been filled with hyperlinks for those who were steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, those who were very familiar with the Old Testament, as they're reading uh, what John is writing in this event, uh, they are connecting it with the Passover. So we said all of this uh, that we're reading about in John chapter six was introduced last week at the beginning of John chapter six with the reference that the Passover was near. And we've seen the events of Jesus being like Moses up on the mountain, who's teaching and the giving of bread, the feeding of the people of Israel. And so this Passover context is behind all of this. And when God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, they ultimately came to what? The sea, the Red Sea, and it was impossible for them to cross. And yet God came and the way that the scriptures recount God dividing the sea and leading the Israelites across the sea onto dry land uh, comes in the Psalms. And I can't remember the 
reference for this, Psalm 77, 18, we read, the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightning lit up the world. The earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so this imagery that the psalmist uses to recount God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt is of God walking on what? The waters. That he is walking across the waters in the midst of this storm and leading his people out of this place of destruction and death. And so this is, this is being tied, this, this image of Jesus and this deliverance of the Israelites from slavery and the Exodus is, is being uh, connected. This hyperlink, if you will, is being referenced. Uh, we see that as Jesus is coming near the boat, they were afraid, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. So there's a lot as well that's, that's tied here. This is, this is in Greek, a, a I am uh, statement, and we're going to see the first of the I am statements that John's going to use here shortly. I am the bread of life. Uh, but then after that, he says, don't be afraid. Now, if you know the Old Testament, this is a phrase that's repeated a lot. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. And specifically, whenever there's an appearance of God or there's an appearance of an angel that he sends, the immediate response is to not be afraid. And we find uh, a, a passage, I'm going to have to start putting these references at the front, uh, in Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. Now, this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. When you pass through the what? The waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. So this idea of not being afraid is not because Israel was never in positions that were scary, just as in the disciples' condition. It's not that this wasn't reason to be afraid or that the, the situation and circumstances that they were in was not frightful. Why is it that God tells his people and why Jesus tells the disciples not to be afraid? Because I am with you. It is the presence of God with his people that allows them to be set free from the fear that they are naturally experiencing. We see the presence of Jesus coming into the boat. Verse 21, they were willing to take him on board. And at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. This again is a hyperlink to Psalm 107, 29 through 30. Again, in reference to this Exodus event, he stilled the storm to a whisper and the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced when the waves grew quiet. Then he guided them to the harbor they longed for. And this is 
This is Jesus, and, and just to kind of pull all of this together, being described as just as God had come and had delivered his people Israel through this place of death. He had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He had uh, delivered them through the waters, which would have ultimately meant death and did mean death for the Egyptian uh, soldiers. And he leads them out of that and, and delivers them from this place of death. And Jesus is coming now as the one who is bringing his disciples, who's delivering them through the waters and through uh, the, the fright and the fear of death that they could not escape on their own. Uh, secondly, we see not only the power to give deliverance, but the power to give life. Now, there are another group of people, not only the disciples in the boat, that we find. And these are the people who had eaten the food that Jesus had multiplied uh, on the side of the mountain. And they were impressed by this. And so the next day has rolled around and guess what? Their stomachs are grumbling. <laughs> and so they, uh, we come to Jesus and they're, they're looking for Jesus. They figure out that the boat had left and Jesus hadn't been on the boat, but, but somehow Jesus is not there. So they go searching for him. And Jesus' response to them when they come looking for him uh, is, truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now let me pause right there. What was their motive for seeking after Jesus? Their bellies, right? They had eaten food and they thought that Jesus could once again provide breakfast. And so as Jesus looks at them, he evaluates their motives and he is, is confronting them. He goes on, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. Food perishes. So we, last week, uh, Jill and I went on a trip. We went, ended up going to the Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, and there was some food that we left in the fridge before uh, flying out. And guess what happened to that food? It rots, right? And this is the nature of food. It, it spoils, it rots. And it is something that, that Jesus is pointing out here, that, that physical food, uh, ultimately, uh, it perishes. It, it doesn't last. But instead, he says, to work for the food that lasts for eternal life. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so Moses was their hero. And they saw him as the one who had provided what when they were in the desert wandering? Manna, right? This bread from heaven. And Jesus is correcting them and he's saying, Moses didn't give that to you. Who gave it? God, my father. He's the one who gave you that bread. And yet there is this greater gift that Jesus ultimately represents, this bread from God. And they said, sir, give us this bread always or all the time. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. 
No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Now, let me stop there. They're still on a first-tier level of understanding. They're thinking about things physically. They wanted a physical, natural king. They wanted physical, natural bread. And now they're thinking, okay, if you're better than Moses, we want you to give us a daily supply of bread, right? You, 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 like, kind of thinking like, you know, like Krispy Kreme. I think we're, are we getting one in Lebanon? I think I've heard. Anyway, the machine, you know, the donuts just come out. Seems like an endless supply and that, that glaze, whatever's in that crack or whatever it is that's in there. And it just comes out and it's just like this ongoing, you know, process. That's kind of this view is like, hey, just keep dishing out the bread, right? Give it to us always. And, and Jesus is, is correcting them. And he's saying that if you, if you don't look to me as simply a physical bread dispenser... But look to me as I actually am, the one who comes to give you life itself, the one who comes to give you spiritual life, the one who God has sent to ultimately meet your far greater and deeper needs, then you will not be thirsty again. And this is very similar language. So the idea that the bread of heaven that Jesus represents is tied, and the language is similar, with the woman at the well. You remember? She was asking for this water. And what did he say? He says, I'll give you living water, right, that will continue to well up within you. I will give you not physical bread and not physical water, but this living water, this true source of life that will satisfy you. And this is where we see, this is talking about desires, So we all have physical bodies. And when I mentioned Krispy Kreme earlier, your bodies reacted. And maybe you're thinking about whatever you're going to have for lunch. And when that happens, your, your stomach grumbles. You experience these appetites. But you're going to eat lunch. And then what's going to happen again about 6 o'clock tonight? Right? You're going to be hungry again. And that is the nature of these physical appetites, this kind of first tier level appetites. And this is very much a part of Jesus teaching. He's, he's talking about these. Now, are these desires bad? They're not, right? They're not, they're natural. It's how we're, why it's how God has made us to live and to move forward and all of these things. These desires are not bad, but what we have to see is if they become bad, when we put them in this place of, of God at some level, when they become ultimate, and this is a, a Lewis quote that I love. He says, if I find in myself appetites which nothing in this world can satisfy, then it tells me that I was made for another world. If I find in myself all of these appetites, and yet I keep feeding those appetites, whatever they are, and I never get full, right? I continue to get hungry at whatever level that means. I continue to have more desire. Then it tells me that these appetites aren't ultimate, right? There's nothing in this world, in this physical world that can satisfy me. And the scriptures would tell us that that's because we were created by a God who is infinite and eternal, 
And we were created to have our ultimate needs, not just physical needs, but body, soul, every aspect of ourself met in him. And and any other source that we are pursuing to meet those won't work. And, And fundamentally, because it won't work, it will end up causing us to be in bondage. And I have experienced this in all kinds of different ways in my life. And my guess is that you have too. That there's ways in which we actually become controlled by these desires. When they actually are no longer things that we do because we want to, but because we have to. And that is slavery. That is enslavement. And ultimately, that's death, right? It's a, it's a place of spiritual death to continue to pursue our, our desires in a way that, that they're never ultimately fulfilled and, and to never experience this, the, the life with God, right? That we were meant to experience. And this is what Jesus is getting at. So they say, what can we do to perform the works of God? They ask. And Jesus replied, this is the work of God. That you believe in the one he has sent. Physically, what can we do? What can we do in our bodies? What can we somehow do in our own strength, in our own will, to do the works of God? What are they still thinking about? Themselves, right? And, and the repetition is purposeful. We're, we're meant to see this. They, they can't get outside of looking at themselves. Their own bodies, their own abilities, And in many ways, neither can we. We are so prone to see the world through our desires, through our will, through our purposes, through our abilities. And as long as we live in that way, we can never experience freedom and we can never experience this life from God that he desires for us to experience. And and we can never experience freedom from the bondage to all of these addictions that grow out of these desires. We, we can't do it. As long as we look to ourselves, we're incapable of it. And this is where Jesus says, what you must do is turn away from yourself and focusing on all of your desires and your will and your abilities and all of this and look to me to believe in Jesus ultimately is the one God sent to meet our truest and greatest desires. There was a news story in 2009 about four football players who went fishing in the Florida Gulf. And in the midst of a storm, the boat that these men were in turned over And over the course of hours that led into days, slowly the men began letting go of the boat and hypothermia likely set in and their physical strength was incapable of holding on. And eventually only one of the men uh, was left. And I think we have a picture here of Nick Schuyler. And this was how the Coast Guard found him. And, and there's something that I think is, this is clearly a tragic story, but I think something important to see is these were physically incredibly strong men. 
These were professional athletes. And yet there was a limit to their strength. There was a limit to their physical ability when what they were against was the sea. And this is where we have to acknowledge that there is a limit, no matter what we're talking about in in our lives, our challenges, our desires. There is a limit to our abilities. There's a limit to our strength. And we have to come to terms with that before we can ever experience freedom or this life and life to the full that Jesus came to bring. We have to get the point of turning away from ourselves, or as Jesus says, dying to ourselves. He says that before we can come and follow him and experience this life with God that he comes to bring, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross every day and follow him. Ultimately, Jesus did not simply go into the waters of the Sea of Galilee to rescue the disciples in the boat. He would go into the waters of death itself. He would suffer on the cross for us. He would take the full weight of our sin and our guilt and all of the destruction of our rebellion against God upon himself and he would die for us. But ultimately, he would rise again. He would emerge from the waters, conquering the very power of sin and death itself so that we could receive freedom and forgiveness and fullness of life with him. And yet in order to understand what it is that he offers, this salvation that he offers us, I want us to consider 2 Corinthians 5.14. We read, for the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Why does Paul write in 2 Corinthians 5, did Jesus die? So that we would no longer live for who? Ourselves, but for him. He died so that we could die to this life lived for the self. The way Willard, Dallas Willard writes it is Christ was not crucified so that we wouldn't have to be. He was crucified so we could be crucified with him. He did not die so we wouldn't have to die. He died so we could die with him. That's a very different truth. The message of the cross is that you, through the grace of God in Christ, can die to yourself. You don't have to live for yourself. You don't have to live for your desires. You don't have to live according to your own abilities. In fact, you are called to die to that. And as you think of, we often think of Christ hanging on the cross. I want to encourage us to think of ourselves hanging on the cross. As Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. And the freedom and the fullness of life that we're offered is a life of surrendering ourselves, surrendering our desires, 
Surrendering our wills and our purposes for our lives and the people around us. Surrendering to living according to our strength and our understanding and our abilities. Surrendering ourself completely to Christ. Our mission statement as a church is reaching our neighbors with the true freedom that's found in full surrender to Christ. This is the invitation that Jesus gives us. The invitation to be set free from the kingdom of darkness and death and to come into the kingdom of light and life, the kingdom of God, is through death, through dying to ourselves. And in that death, experience resurrection to something much greater. I'm gonna be in the prayer room and if there's anyone who would like to talk about that or would need prayer for anything, at any level, I would love to pray with you. But we're gonna respond now through song. Before we do that, I'm gonna invite you to join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us being tossed around in the waves and the storm and the darkness of the waters of death. And Lord, we know that on our own, in our own strength, we could not free ourselves. We could not save ourselves. We could not rescue ourselves. And we can't today. And Lord, we know that our desires so often when they become primary in our lives, they throw us around into chaos and disorder and destruction. And and Lord, as long as we're striving and straining in our own strength, we know we stay there. So would you give us faith in you? Faith to believe that you really are capable of setting us free that your power really is sufficient to rescue us and to save us, to give us life, eternal life with God. Forgive all of our sins, cover all of our guilt and our failure, free us from all of our shame and to empower us to live a new life of freedom and fullness, of joy with you by your spirit. So Lord, would you enable us even now to set our eyes on Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.